Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recorded live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website. This is the August 18th. Um, 2017 show, and and you know these are supposed to be the dog days of summer. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to complain because it's very very nice up here in Chicago. Um, you know we haven't had we haven't had those you know blazing hot days with the high humidity yet, and I'm I'm not going to complain even if I do because you know what they say about karma. Uh, this is William Hayashi. I'm your host for tonight. Uh, tonight's special guest is J.C. Holbrook. Um, I've interviewed. How many times have I interviewed you? Once or twice? Twice. So this will be the third time. Yeah. So this is the third time she's coming by. She's a professor. She's an astrophysicist. She's a she's a movie producer. She's an author. She, I'm pretty sure she does even more things than I do, which makes her a pretty remarkable person. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back because you, you do have a very, very, very busy life. And it's busy stuff that most people are not involved in. You know, some people may do this, some people may do that, but you you manage to package a lot of things in, uh, all at once. And um, you also relocated recently, right? Because when I, when I well, met you, you were living... In uh, South Africa, right. That, that and, was the last year. Yes. Yeah, and then how 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 long ago was it when you moved back to the U.S.? It's actually been a year. Okay. So I I am now living in the Washington D.C. area, and mm-hmm. I took I took a fellowship um, with the um, uh, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, has what's called Science and Technology Policy. Fellows, and okay. it's a one-year fellowship, and I applied for it, and I got it, and it brought me to, you know, inside the Washington D.C. Beltway. How's the sound? Am I okay for sound? Oh yeah, you're fine, and and you and you, you it brought you there just in time for all of the excitement. I know, I know. <laughs> More excitement than I wanted. Yeah, so I was here for the election, and um, you know, but also I was here as a temporary resident, right? My job is still in South Africa, and so, right. um, so even through all the elections, and I did not vote for our president. I voted for the other candidate, and but there's. There's an escape valve. You know, I'm only here for maybe another year. And um, so even when all this was going down, it didn't really impact me strongly because I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not going to be staying here. So and I think that's a little bit unfair for everyone else because everyone else has got to live with that decision, right? 
with the election results. But I'm mm-hmm. only going to be here probably another year. And and you're heading back where South Africa, right? Yes, for now, yes. Mhm, mhm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, just between you and me, you know, this this knucklehead can't really do much to impact my life directly. Ah. Now, that is not to say that untold hundreds of thousands or millions will suffer as a result of his, I mean, frankly, his incompetence. I mean, this is a person who has absolutely no skill set suitable for governance and especially for being president. Um, But I I do feel bad for other people out there who have to suffer, you know, his his incompetence, his his sloth, his racism, his, uh, you know, just, I mean, the, the, the litany is almost endless. Um, you know, but there's not a lot that uh, he and his people can do to inconvenience me. Um, and and I, I I consider myself very fortunate for that. You know, I was born in this country. You know, I'm, I I speak better than most people. So when anybody speaks to me in authority, they they automatically they give me a certain mm-hmm. amount of space and license that they don't do other people. And then, you know, I'm, I'm biracial, but I am visibly of indeterminate racial origin. So there's nothing that someone can, you know, really pin me down with. Otherwise, they go, well, who was that big-headed Puerto Rican-looking guy? You know, that's about the <laughs> best they can come up with. And, and so, you know, I, I'm extremely privileged. I'm, I'm actually more privileged than whites because I get different consideration because I look different. I sound out of character, and, um, you know, I just feel bad for people who don't know how to manipulate the system and and can't make everything to their advantage, or they just get messed with. You know, somebody your color, let's say a guy your color and and I get into two cars. I mentioned this a couple times on the air. And we're here in Chicago, and we're driving north on Lakeshore Drive toward downtown, and we both get pulled over. You know, statistically, um, the, the person in the other car has like a 16 to 20 times higher chance of being murdered by a cop than I do merely because I'm light skinned. And so yeah. we got a lot of, we got a lot of things that go on in this country that are not only not perfect, not optimal, but, but long overdue for change. I had yes. someone, I, I was talking to someone on the, the radio, Tom Hartman, and he's, he's a, a pretty well-known progressive. And we were talking about um, we were talking about that issue, and I said, you know, for the most part, Tom, nothing has changed. And he got very, very indignant. I understood why he got indignant because, of course, we're not exactly bought and sold on stages anymore. But in terms of being killed with impunity by someone white, nothing has changed in 398 years. So, absolutely, yeah, I agree. Anyway, I, yeah, and then and then I think about you living in South Africa. I'm sorry. Yeah. I I remember one of the last interviews that we did. I talked about I was living in South Africa. That must have been the last one. I was living in South Africa, sure. but I was temporarily back in the U.S. And I said that I'm here, but for the grace of the white person standing next to me, because the white person standing next to me could point a finger at me at any time, and I could be killed. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that. and that no question asked. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, it's as bad as it is here, 
where you've been living for a large part of the last few years, um, it, it's three years, so three much, years. yeah, yeah, but it's still so much worse in in terms of what you just described. You know, there's there's it's no different. recourse that you have no, under no, that no. condition. It's, it's different. We're not under apartheid anymore. No, I know right? that. It's, right. It's post-apartheid. But remember that, you know, my circumstances were different because I'm American. So whatever they think, they can be nasty, you know, and I got nastiness from all the races. But as soon as okay. I opened my mouth and they heard my American accent, then everybody was kissing my behind, right? Oh, so, that's nice. That I mean, I mean, it, yes. it's hard to live under an oppressive environment, you know, because first yes. of all, it, it takes its toll on you mentally, it takes its toll on you physically, um, yes. emotionally, but but to have that slight respite once somebody yes, hears it, your, it, it was, you know, where you're three, from. Yeah, three years in which I basically, for the first time in my life, could just do my work. I was like, oh, so this is what it's like to be not African-American and be a scientist. I can just, <laughs> you know, write yeah. them oh, yeah. and get them and, like, go to work and mentor my students and teach my classes, and there's no one who thinks that I'm illegitimately there, that I haven't earned my place to be there, that somehow it was given to me, and therefore right. it should be taken away from me easily. You know, I didn't have to, like, continuously make moves to to preserve the territory that I had and expand the territory that I had and protect it from those people who wanted to take it away from me because they thought right. that I hadn't earned the right to be there. And so it was like, it was very, very refreshing and it was very relaxing and my stress levels went down. And and But on the other hand, there was something missing because I was so used, for, used to fighting for everything. Right. You know, everything was such a fight, such a struggle. It was so nice to not, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, we're in a meeting and they think I have good sense and they think I'm really smart because I am, right? <laughs> As opposed well, to I mean, nobody, nobody wants to hear what I have to say because I couldn't possibly be smart, <laughs> right? Right, so, right. Yeah, it was it was very very refreshing. But in the end, I came back to the U.S. Uh, my daughter needs to graduate from high school in the U.S. and and go off to college. So I came back because she needed to do that. And um, this was a great opportunity. I love the AAAS Science and Technology Policy Program because it does place you in government agencies. And you learn a lot about the way the government works and funding works and how policy decisions are made from scientific data or from the White House, depending upon the situation. So I've learned a lot about science funding government style. Very cool. Um, and to let people know, that's only part of what you do. Yes. Because um, you're also an author. I've read your work, and, yes. and we discussed that. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And then you're you're also a filmmaker, mostly documentary style. Yes, and, all, uh, documentary. all documentary. Yeah, right. Um, I, I work with nonfiction. 
Well, I work. Excuse. Uh, well, we no, no, no. You talk. Let's talk about. Let's like right as we sit here. You know, you mentioned you won some. You you were looking for some flash flash fiction that you wanted to read. I have to apologize. Sometimes my words don't come out well. I had a I had a car accident a year almost exactly a year ago, where I had the worst brain injury that I've had in a long, 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 long time. So sometimes my words don't come out right. Um, I'm anyway, really sorry I mean, to hear that. I'm sorry to well, hear that. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, actually, I'm lucky to be alive because uh, I pulled some sleight of hand. Some, oh, I'll just tell you. Someone was about to hit my door going about 45, 50 miles an hour. And yeah. I saw them maybe about 20, 25 feet away from me. And I had just enough time to stomp on the gas so they hit the back door and I lived. Oh, that's too close. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, that is too anyway, close. I mean, well, well, let's talk about. I mean, what what would you like to cover first? Because, you know, I I read the the installment of tribes that you sent me, and I'm kind of curious to see where you went with that. You've got some flash fiction you want to read, and then you know we could also talk about the documentary. Um, especially in light of the fact that um, we've got an actual astrophysical event due here right around the corner. Yeah, why don't we start with the film? <laughs> why not? Okay, so, um, you want to talk about Black Suns? Yes. So Black Suns, subtitled An Astrophysics Adventure, is a astronomy documentary like you've never seen in your life. So um, we followed two African-American astrophysicists, Dr. Hakeem Olushayi and Dr. Alphonse Sterling, to two solar eclipses in 2012. So backing up, I'll tell you where the idea came from for this film. In 2006, there was a total solar eclipse in Ghana, and I designed a conference on African cultural astronomy to coincide with that total solar eclipse. But for every total solar eclipse, there is some sort of science broadcast associated with the eclipse. And since this was an eclipse that was in West Africa, on the African continent, I studied how the eclipse broadcasts were done in 2001 and 2002 because we Mm -hmm. wanted to do an eclipse broadcast in 2006. And what I found was that the way that they did the broadcast was horrific. It was great if you were a nerdy scientist, but it was horrible if you knew anything about Africa and its people. They said some terms which never should be said. (laughs) Okay. You know, the the main thing that I point out is everybody who was white on the Eclipse broadcast, when I introduced them, they used a first and last name. Okay. Everyone who was black, if they got a name, it was only their first name. But a lot of times they were essentialized to their job. So here's our night guard. Here's our driver. So they didn't even merit mm-hmm. a, a name. Mm-hmm. And I know that this was all done unconsciously and subconsciously. And I know that 
it's a situation of live television, so it makes people nervous. But why did they know the first and last names of everyone if they were white? I get so, you. So I pointed all this out, and I actually wrote an article about it. But when we did our Eclipse broadcast, we wanted something di- different. Another aspect of the earlier, the 2001 and 2002 Eclipse broadcasts, is there was no science. So the science was done by the crew that was there, which was a group of science enthusiasts and science communicators, and they did demos and everything. But the implication was that there was no science in Africa, which is completely false. Sure. So we situated, in 2006, we situated our Eclipse broadcast where we were, which was at the University of um, now I'm blanking. <laughs> Sorry, Cape Coast University, and and El near Elmina. Where was it? it? The town is actually called Cape Coast. So it was Cape Coast University and Cape Coast Ghana, and we put ourselves in the Central Squad, which was you know the Central Square, and we surrounded ourselves with the students and professors that were there that were attending the university, and so we interview a bunch of students, they're all articulate, they say their first and last name, and they say their major, and they say why they came out for the eclipse. And we interviewed some of the professors who were physics professors. Uh, We had physics professors from Nigeria as well. We had an anthropology professor, an archaeology professor from Tanzania. So we interviewed all these people. So most of the people in the broadcast are black. And the hosts were three African Americans. But you can see my white students. My white students are in the background managing the crowd. So it's actually a diverse, it's a diverse broadcast. But all the speaking roles were black people, which, again, was really different from any other Eclipse broadcast. So as part of that adventure in Ghana in 2006 with the Eclipse, making the first film, so I was... I wasn't a producer, but I probably should have gotten an executive producer credit for that film because I'm the sure. one who brought in the film crew from Morehouse, and I'm the one who said, this is going to happen, we should do this, and this is why we should do it, because they've been doing it in such a way that it implies that there's no science in Africa. So, And they bought it, and, and Morehouse Media Arts, they stepped up to the plate, and they made it happen. But Hakeem, who was co-hosting that Eclipse broadcast with me, was there also as part of a solar astrophysics project. So he was with me doing the Eclipse broadcast, but his partner in crime was Alphonse Sterling, who was actually with a subgroup of students doing the Eclipse science with a telescope in another location. So he was actually Mm -hmm. taking data during that eclipse. So that was the first time that I saw Alphonse and Hakeem together and talk about the odd couple. So Hakeem is like lively and boisterous and telling stories and he fills up a room and Alphonse is quiet and nerdy and precise (laughs) and 
both of them are African-American men, and both of them do solar astrophysics. Both of them do physics on the corona. And I thought, wow, these two are such a contrast <laughs> that, that it would be really great to make a film about the two of them. <laughs> so that was back in 2006. And it took until 2012 to actually make that film. And then it took from 2012 until 2017 to edit that film and release it. So it was released in June this year. And that film is Black Suns and Astrophysics Adventure. Mm-hmm. And, and what kind of feedback have you had about it so far? Everyone loves it, actually. We, we and, made it. And, it's 40, 47 minutes long. Okay. Meant to fit into a one-hour or a 50-minute classroom period. And I hope that it's a film that's taught actually in film classes because we did something really different. And we weren't the first ones, but we, we've done it African-American style. So there is the backstory. The backstory is we have the history of Hakeem, the history of Alphonse, what work they're doing today. In Hakeem's case, Clay, in Hakeem's case, we show him teaching his classes, mentoring his students, and we talk about the eclipse. In Alphonse's case, we were in Tokyo. He lives and works in Tokyo. Talk about a Japanese Negro. I know you always call yourself that. But he's just African-American, African-American living in Tokyo. We were there uh-huh. for the, the annular eclipse. So we see him doing all the prep, interacting with the Japanese public and he speaks Japanese so probably the first time in history we have an African-American man on film speaking extensively in Japanese not just a line or two but having conversations in Japanese so there is a cinematic history making moment and then the second mm-hmm. one is I'm pretty sure that there's never been in, an, in any film um, footage of an African-American man putting together a telescope and taking it apart later, right? Very I don't cool. think that that is on film anywhere. So at least those two are cinematic first. Um, so another thing that is a cinematic first is that we follow them to do a science experiment. And I think that there's no film footage of following two African-American men around the world as they do science. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I have never heard of such myself. Um, so, I mean, all of that is pretty cool. Uh, it also, I, I noted here that um, you won a, uh, what is it, a jury prize at yes. Brooklyn Film Festival? Yeah, so it premiered, the, the, the U.S. Film Festival premiere was the Art of Book Brooklyn Film Festival. And it won the top prize, which was the jury prize at the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival. So already on its first first film festival out the gate, it won the top prize. So we were very proud, very happy. But it's almost uh, one of the reasons that you go put it in film festivals is that you want to win a prize. And then once you win a prize, then you have that. It's a prize-winning film. And then when you distribute it, 
it's a little bit higher. It's, it's fancier because it's won a prize. So when it won a prize immediately, and it's like, well, do we keep submitting it to film festivals? <laughs> you know, we, we wanted a prize. We got it. Do we, you know, right. this film festival, it costs, you know, you know, 50 to to $100 to submit it. So we're yeah. talking money. So for when we set the budget for the film festivals, we limited ourselves to $650 that we would spend entry fees up to $650, and then we would stop. And that goal, okay. that, like I said, was to win a festival. So we did. It, got, it actually got rejected from a lot of uh, film festivals, which was really surprising. Given that was it because it was more out. of a documentary? or I mean, what were they looking for that they did not see, that they did not like? I don't know. You'd have to ask the people who rejected us. Well, no, I, I thought maybe you might have heard. I didn't know. I did correspond with one of the film festivals in Ohio, and I was particularly uh-huh. disappointed because the total solar eclipse on Monday goes right over where the festival was. And I said, oh, it's heartbreaking that you didn't accept this film because of the total solar eclipse. It's going to go right over you. And this would have been great to educate people to the eclipse. And they said, well, the problem was the length of the documentary. It was an in-between length, and it was hard to do the programming because of the length of the film. That's what oh, okay. But they also said they really liked the film and that they would like to be in touch about screening it at another time. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's positive. Yeah, it was positive. It was, it was positive. But still, I thought, you know, here we are. We're going into Eclipse on Monday. I'm submitting it to African-American film festivals, and they're not accepting it. What's wrong with these people? (laughs) But with uh, my other film, which was Hubble's Diverse Universe, um, people, people really struggle with science. And they wanted to hear the story about these people, but they didn't want to see the science of these people. I think science makes people uncomfortable. And well, we worked really hard to try to make the science accessible because right. you're acting as if there's no scientists. Like, just like the Eclipse broadcast in 2001 and 2002, the implication was there's no science in Africa. Right, and so for our broadcast, we showed both a university because some people think there's no universities in Africa, and we showed science and scientists in Africa. So here we are, we're African American and we're scientists, and we do research, and it happens to be around eclipses. So you can't erase our existence. We shouldn't be ignored because we're part of the African American community as well. I'm do you just think there, Do you think the pushback was, you know, cultural or was it just, you know, I I know that there are a lot of people out there who are uncomfortable with science, who don't trust it, who who have bought into this conservative meme of not trusting scientists and things like that. Um, what was it, was it more, uh, educational acculturation or political in, in the pushback? 
that's the only feedback that I had, so I can't address any of those things. Okay, all right. I haven't approached the other film festivals that rejected me and asked, well, why did I get rejected? I've just gone on to the next one. Sure. But like I said, because of the strategic location of Ohio, that's why I, I asked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, and where's the next place? I mean, are you going to enter any more festivals, or or are you going to go on to, you know, distribution? What what do you think your plan is going to be, or have you made a plan yet? So we are still in festivals. We're still waiting to hear from all the festivals we submitted to with that $650. There was going to be a screening this week at the Capitol City Black Film Festival in Austin. However, mm-hmm. they were not able to secure all of their funding, and they had to significantly scale down. And our, we decided not to screen it. Even though they're having like a mini festival, we decided not to screen it. Um, and then next week is the Bronze Lens Film Festival in Atlanta. And on the 26th, it'll be screening at 1.15 p.m. as part of that festival. Do um, me a favor. Um, once, once we get done with the show, if you don't mind putting those up in the uh, events calendar at blacksciencefictionsociety.com, then that way uh, we can have Jarvis blast out a notice to people that they will be showing because we've got people all over the, the, the country. Yeah, and in Atlanta, yes. Yeah, especially Atlanta, I was about to say. We've got a ton of people in Atlanta who are members, and um, that, that that you know that's something that they should see if you have the opportunity. But I, I'm forgetting to say that we are actually have it available for stream on Vimeo, Vimeo this weekend only for $3.99. Because All right, we we'll want- see. Yeah, let me put that in the window. <laughs> in yeah, the put window. that there, but also also that you should put that in the you know, make a, a blog post at BSFS so that that uh, Jarvis can feature it and then it goes out to everybody. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. Because so, I, I wanna I wanna see that myself. And you know, I as much as I love getting free stuff, I'd rather pay people who who deserve to get my money. <laughs> Thank you. Not everybody deserves to get my money. So I've gone yeah. round and round with the IRS about getting my money. Oh, we um, need to hear about that. Well no, you know, here's the thing. You know, it, we're we're forced to pay for bad government. We don't we don't really have a choice of how our money is spent except by voting for the people we vote for. And if you get some knucklehead in there who's going to abuse your money, you know, you really have little recourse, you know, because obviously the majority the majority rules on that. But anyway, I, I definitely want to – I'm going to stream that this weekend myself, so I That'd definitely want that information. That would be great. So what we're doing is it's three ninety nine. We actually are in the red for the film, so – uh, we wanted to make it available, but we can't make it available for free because we're in the red. So we wanted to make it very economical for everyone to sure. Get, sure. Yeah, to get a chance to see it. 
we tried to get on some of the PBS stations, but it, we didn't get on any of the PBS stations. But it's good to be on Black Science Fiction Radio. May I ask it's, you something? Yes. Have you thought about contacting uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Oh, we know Neil. Yeah, we know well. Neil. You know, I forgot to reach out to him. You know, the problem okay. is that, you know, Neil is a superstar. And I knew well, and Neil also, from a long time ago. And yeah. he's always very gracious when he meets me. But I'm totally aware that everyone asks him for favors and connections and stuff all the time. And so I tend to not bother him. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. You know, I, I've spoken to him and, you know, we've, we've emailed back and forth and I even sent him an inscribed copy of one of my books. And uh, and and to be honest, Neil, Neil has his own cottage industry, which is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and there's nothing that you could say bad about that because, you know, you have to protect your brand, you have to, but, but, you know, even to the extent of emailing him and asking him what his advice would be to do X, Y, and Z, well, I mean, that, I don't think that's so far-fetched. Hmm. Yeah. Anywho. Anywho. So we, we have to finish the festival run. I'm going to be showing, screening the film in, in Idaho in Sun Valley this Sunday. I fly out Sunday morning. So okay. That, that's the screening that I'll be present. At the Bronze Lens, I'm pretty sure that both Alphonse Sterling and Hakeem Oshayi and my director, Kelvin Phillips, well, the three of them will be at the Bronze Lens screening. It was already screened at the Air and Space Museum out near Abdullah Airport uh, last week, and both Alphonse and Hakeem were there for that screening. So, And that went over very, very well. So oh, good. Yeah, it's been it's been very very those people who've had the opportunity to see it have really loved it and of course I showed it in my department I'm, I was at the National Science Foundation I showed it to them they loved it so but I think that people you know like you say oh I'm a documentary filmmaker and people are like yeah 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 and then they see your film and they're like oh you're a documentary filmmaker and I'm like yeah that's right <laughs> yes I am. <laughs> But they don't believe you, it actually see it. Oh, you know, it's such short time, it's too late, really. But I was wondering, you know, here in Chicago, the Adler Planetarium does show a lot of different content, you know. Yes. And, and because of the eclipse, it would have been great to get, you know, to get you in there maybe for this weekend. But, of course, it's too late. Yes, um, it's too late. But, and we thought about that. We did thought about that. It did. Okay. It, it took an extra one thousand dollars to reformat the film for a big digital display, but we have it now. Oh yeah. For a big digital display, and and coming up to the eclipse, you know, it it would have been different. We all have, unfortunately, we all have day jobs, and so we oh, did yeah. what, what we could, and we 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 dedicated ourselves to somebody has to be with the film for each film festival. So that's what sure. our dedication was, and we were we were trying really hard to get it on to NASA TV uh, before mm-hmm. the festival. But this is the best we could do was, you know, get it on Vimeo, Vimeo for the weekend. And so once you purchase it for three ninety nine, 
you get access to it for 24 hours from the time of purchase. Uh-huh. So eventually it'll be on DVD or on demand or something. But right now we're just trying to get it out and let it go through the rest of its festival run. So unlike most documentaries where it's just talking heads, we're actually doing something. We're doing science. So there's there's definitely moments of talking heads. There's, you know, retrospectives about the two stars families. But they're sure. actually they're actually doing science during the eclipse. And that's very dramatic. Eclipses are natural drama for films. So it's different well, because it's doing something. It's not just telling you about astronomy. It's I'm telling you about astronomy and now you're gonna watch me take my data. Did you see what's happening around the country with stupid people? Uh, I'm afraid to ask, but what's happening around the country? Calls to calls to 911, wondering how people can protect themselves, people stocking up on supplies. Uh, yeah, end of the world stuff, right? Exactly. There was a BBC I, you know, reporter. Let me find this report while I'm thinking about it. There was a BBC reporter right. who talked to me extensively about this end-of-world mythology that goes with almost every celestial event. And he's like, why do you think that is? I'm like, it depends on your God. If you have a mean God, of course you think everything's going to be the end of the world. But if you have a nice God, then it's just another celestial event. <laughs> yeah, he, for, for me, and it's not necessarily. It's not you know coming out of the Judeo-Christian ethos, which is very much a vengeful God. So it's a mean God, so to speak, um, ameliorated by the nice God who is Jesus, right? So the two gods are you know kind of in contrast. So it's it's not, and the Bible is so doom and gloom, like the we're all well, the Old Testament. Heaven. Yeah. The Old Testament so, God is is a God you don't want to mess with. Exactly. And so that carries over in beliefs about the sky, right? It's, essentially, it's a reflection of religious beliefs. And I had to give lots of counterexamples because, of course, when you're writing an article, you want the most sensational stuff. But I'm telling you, if another reporter contacts me about end of world myths and, and, and eclipses and, and you know, the, the bad things that happen. I, I think I'm going to pull my hair out because every year they contact me and they want me to give them more end of world. And I never, I never give them end of world myths. I always give them examples of how people perceive total solar eclipses not as end of world mythology but as an act of love or an act of reconciliation or something positive, not just, oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> because it wasn't. It wasn't as if everybody in the world looked at, looked at a hole in the sky and thought, oh, the world's coming to an end. You know, no. They were the, the most common, probably the most widespreadness is parts of the Pacific, South and North America, it was an intimate act between a man and a woman. The sun and the moon were having, you know, conjugal visits. And that darkness was to prevent us from seeing it, right? So that's from something seeing, very from nice. Seeing, yeah, from seeing the cosmic genitalia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yes. So it was very different. What's so sad is that, you know, in this country, the ubiquity of the dumbing down of America, you know, makes that so noteworthy. And then, of course, the media wants to pick up on it because it's sensational. And yeah. and it's just, it, it you know, we're, it's bad enough we're anti-science to the extent that we are. Um, mm-hmm. I, you yeah. know, I'm sitting here in my chair just shaking my head continuously thinking about the whole thing. Uh, okay, I'm, okay, I'm well, pushing that, a link that, to that BBC audio, uh, uh, article. And okay. It's there now. All right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, pretty soon. Let's see. Let's, how many times do you think Monday... They're going to be playing It's the End of the World as We Know It. That's one song. Uh, Pink Floyd's Eclipse. Um, oh, whoever that rock group was, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Uh, you know, there's yeah. going to be... That was uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't mind humor. Yeah, I don't mind humor. I, I, I do mind stupidity. I've, you know what I've come to realize in the past year or so? I am a really mean elitist snob, and I really should back <laughs> off of that. But I, yeah, you know, you I came really by it honestly. Yeah, you, you should do that. So I just wanted uh, to say uh, that I, bringing this back between science and science fiction, right? So this whole end of the world, and we're talking about different types of gods. This is totally reflected in how we write science fiction. We think sure. about gods creating gods that are, you know, evil or good, because we create our own, our whole world. And we think through, okay, if we had a different type of god or goddess, how would that play out in society? Can we think of ways in which it would make society different? Uh That's why I just want to just briefly bring that back to science fiction. Sure. Um, which brings us back to you as an author. Um, let, let's do this. Before we go to your flash fiction, let's talk about some of your earlier works, you know, the Astronaut Tribe works and things like that, and, and tell us, you know, give, give them an idea of what that series is about, and then I'm curious to know where it, 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 where it sits right now in terms of production or published or whatnot. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so Astronaut Tribe was an inspiration of my, and I think I've spoken before about going and listening to other writers talk about their writing process. And they almost always say the same thing, which is these characters started speaking in my head, and after a while they were speaking in complete sentences, and I had to write it down, and it became this story. So similarly, these characters, the characters came first and then the situation. But I always come back to the fact that my Astronaut Tribe series is an American story because it addresses issues of American racism. So Astronaut Tribe, the premise is you have astronauts. Okay, everyone knows that I, at some point in my long career, I worked for NASA. And, but I'm one of the few people who do astrophysics who never wanted to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. Yet, 
yet I met a lot of astronauts because I was an astrophysicist. So I, I decided that I would write this series called Astronaut Tribe. And it's about a group of astronauts that go up to the heliopause because the heliopause is shrinking. So this is the problem when you get someone who's really an astrophysicist doing science fiction. I throw these terms out. Now I have to explain what they are. So the heliopause is the barrier between our solar system and the rest of the Milky Way galaxy. So our sun is blowing out, as you know, lots of charged particles and, and um, um, ions. And Well, ions are charged particles but it makes a protective bubble around the solar system. But also our sun and the solar system is, is making a circuit around the center of the galaxy. So it's not even that bubble. The leading edge as the sun is moving, in the direction that the sun is moving, that bubble, protective bubble, is kind of smashed on one side. It's not as big as it is on the trailing side. And so we're... The, the atmosphere within the bubble, which is our solar system atmosphere, has a different composition from the rest of the galaxy, our, where we are in the galaxy. And that transition from our solar system atmosphere to the galactic atmosphere is called the heliopause. So the premise of the story scientifically is that the heliopause is shrinking. And because they don't know, they cannot measure or understand what's happening in the heliopause to make it shrink, they send a NASA mission to go to the heliopause to do scientific measurements to understand why the heliopause is shrinking and if there's a chance that it would shrink so much that the Earth would be in harm. Because we know the atmosphere within the solar system. We don't know what our life would be like in the galactic atmosphere. So that's the scientific premise. So in the process of going on this three-year mission, their bodies fundamentally change because they're getting, they're being exposed to different spectrums and it triggers what's genetically coded in their bodies to institute changes so that they can survive. So they, they, their bodies are modified. So that's the premise of the story. And then, so part of the story is dealing with these changes. And there's, it's a murder mystery. And then they have to come back home. And they have to make a decision about what they're going to do when they come back home. And that takes us through the end of the first book. And then the second book is what happens when they come back to Earth. And then the third book is a romance. So the second book is kind of a romance for what happens. The third book is the one that I'm having the most trouble writing. It has a, a Navajo word, which means black god. And it was a celestial being that was part of the, the um, Navajo pantheon. And I'm, I'm having a hard time writing. I'm writing it longhand. And it's three stories woven into one, three of the different astronaut stories as they're they're re-acclimatizing themselves to life on Earth. Uh, that's Black God. That's the hardest one. And then the fourth book in the series is about, it's basically wrapping up the series. What happens to the astronaut tribe 
when they go back to NASA, when they decide that decision to go back to NASA and what happens to them after that. So it's a four-book series. It could be one long book, but I broke it up into four books. So Mm -hmm. the third book is The Holdup. In terms of publishing, all four of them have not been published. The first one I've rewritten, I think, four times. The second one I have not rewritten, and it needs a rewrite. No, I I take that back. I've, I've rewritten it twice. And it needs another rewrite. And then the third one, it needs to be finished. The arc of that story needs to be finished. And then it needs to be digitized. I have to type it in. And then, of course, when you type it in, it, it's re- you're rewriting it as you're typing it in. And then the, sure. fourth one, the fourth one needs to be rewritten as well. So the fourth one I did as a nan- NaNoWriMo uh, a few okay. years ago. So I was. I, it's a great way to get a novel finished because it has to be 55,000 words and you have to do it in a month, right? So it was just, I slammed out this, I slammed out this novel in the month of November. So it's done, but now it's all in the rewrite. So maybe this year I will get to rewriting those. But because I've been a, a science and technology policy fellow for a year at National Science Foundation, I dropped my research agenda for a year, and there's things that I need to do in terms of my intellectual research being a professor in South Africa. I got a new grant. I have to start a new program. My students who should have graduated did not, so I have to, like, go back and get them in shape. It's like, get out, graduate already. And they're all graduate students, and you know that graduate school can go on and on if you let it. So. My writing, my science, my science fiction writing will be competing with my academic writing. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. I get yeah. paid for my academic writing. I don't get paid for my science fiction writing at this point. Right. Well, I mean, but the other thing is, is you put a lot of, of, of time and effort into refining this story so that it says exactly what you want it to say. So yeah. you're you know, the chances are much, much better that you're going to end up with a product that you're very, very happy with, a much happier with. Yes, yes. and I even have an agent for the series. But wow. I feel, yeah, I've had an agent for two years for the series. And it's the third book. The third book is really my heart. That's why it's taking so long. Because it's, it's and, the story arc, it's like this, this is going to be like the amazing part of this series. The first part, of, of course, the first book is amazing. The second book is charming, you know. But the third book, this is this is the one, right? And then the fourth book is kind of like the denouement, you know, bringing everything together, bringing all those threads. And um, so, but this is it. It's kind of like the books themselves are on the pattern of a climax, right? So you have, you know, you're setting the stage in the first book. You're bringing the plot along, but the third book is kind of the the, the climax of the climax, the mega climax, and then it mm-hmm. goes down, and then it goes down in the fourth book, right? So I I, I completely understand. I mean, you know, I, my mine is not four books long; mine is three books long. But but for me, um, I uh, my second book is the one that really it, it pulls together things that people didn't know, and it tells a story the backstory of why the whole trilogy exists. And, yeah. and, and, and so I do understand about the pivotal 
the pivotal volume that you want to put together to make everything work properly. And it just takes um, time. It takes this attention. It uh-huh. does. And I and and since you know I'm not being supported by my writing, I can actually take the time. Right. And so yeah, but because I can take the time, I am taking the time, which is bad because it's mm-hmm. kind of dragging. It's kind of dragging out. <laughs> Yeah, but you know the other part. The other part is you don't want to put something out there that you're not going to be happy with either. So, yes, it's it's going to get done. The fact that you're this far along, when when you know, back when we last spoke about the series, you really had only gotten the first volume done to the point where you know it it was showable to somebody else. You know what I mean? Yeah, and right now I can show the first and the second volumes easily. Right. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. Uh, I. I kind of. Um, I understand when you take on a big project like that, how life can get in the way. Yeah. Um, because you know, especially for you, you're you know you're bicontinental. I know that that's not the term. It's, but it's three. Not I actually I circulate through three continents: Africa, Europe, and America. Okay, so you're tricontinental, and and, trying, and you're busy. I, actually, this year I might be starting a project in Australia. <laughs> Sorry, oh. I get around. No, I mean I think I think that's great. I mean, first of all, it, it speaks well of your reputation as a professional, and second of all, it's kind of enviable that you get to because by doing that, you're going to meet a lot of people that you wouldn't meet otherwise. Um, and it's kind of like for me for the show, I get to meet people who I never, 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 never would have ever met. I mean, the chances of you of you and I meeting, excuse me, were I not doing this show is is relatively small. You know, they probably might not have ever happened at all. You know. Yeah. So, so that's kind of cool meeting other other uh, professionals. Plus, look at the team you put together to do the documentary. Those are people that that you would not have met otherwise for the most part. And so I, I think the I think the best part for me of our shared endeavors as as creatives is getting to meet like minded people who do who even do different things that, that you wouldn't have met. So there's there's value in that for me and, and it sounds like it is for you too. Now when you Absolutely. um when you mentioned this flash fiction work that you've been doing, yes, tell, give me the background of that. You so, know, what, what was it that, that okay. put you in mind to do some flash fiction? So um, when I was in South Africa, I wanted to, to write some uniquely South African short stories in flash fiction. And so... Okay. I wanted to capture the ethos of being in South Africa, being an African, uh, the racial dynamics and ethnic dynamics of being African in South Africa during the time that I was there. And so I actually wrote under a pen name, but most of the stuff that I wrote that are fo- that's focused on South Africa has never been published. I keep sending it out. It's kind of two way out there. And I wanted, I, I picked two pieces to read uh, tonight. One is, is from my South African series, and the other is 
not from our South African series, another way to put it. And so for this, for this exercise, what it was, it was a competition in South Africa by one of the newspapers. And what they did was they had a list of former headlines. And some of these were like, you know, weekly world news and, and whatever, you know, gossip rag headlines. And you had to build a story around it in 650 words or less. So I wanted, mm-hmm. to, read, I wanted to read you the one of the – I did two of these. Um, let me see, where did I put it? Ooh, here it is. So I wanted to read one of these. To you, and I'm not sure. going to give you the I'm not going to give you the the the, the title until after I read it. Okay. So it's only 650 words, and I haven't read this in a long time, so I'll just go slowly. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Um, and and I'm going to assume that everybody who picks this up as a podcast is also ready. Okay. Amy <laughs> Zamu. Go ahead. Are, Okay, Imizamu Yuthu Township, at its core, was alive with activity at 2 in the morning. A green laser made a circle in the sky. A red laser traced a large circle on the ground. The woman working the green laser only used it once a minute, while the red laser kept drawing the circle on the ground. The white South African community occupied the lush valleys and beachfront of House Bay, while Imizamu Yuthu was tucked on the hillside, pinned in by the highway, across which was the school and playing ground that provided a buffer zone between the two communities. There was a whoosh of rushing air. Then the green laser hit the bottom of a dark spacecraft. Immediately, she turned off the laser and shouted, Raise the walls! As the spacecraft settled into the ground, onto the ground, the Africans enclosed it within a corrugated tin building that blended in perfectly with the other tin shacks in, their, in the center of the township. The woman took a walkie-talkie out of her pocket and said, Report? A voice responded, It looks quiet. The workers walked towards the opening they left in the building and waited. As a visitor from outer space emerged from the building, she said, Report? again into the walkie-talkie. The voice said, no signs of detection. The name Imazamu Yusu was a Kosa phrase meaning our combined effort. On nights like this, the township was well-named as they worked together to protect South Africa, yet be hospitable to the visitors from outer space. An old man stepped towards the visitors and began a dialogue. Though he had been teaching some of the others the trade language, he was still the most fluent. Few could understand what was being conveyed through sign language and the strange sounds that made up the language. However, they all knew the gist of the message was, welcome to South Africa, please leave. Those that knew the language were not surprised to hear the visitors offer to destroy the white community, which continued to hoard resources and gently oppress all the other South African communities each new set of visitors made this offer when they came. Their children and were teaching them. They learned but slowly, was the old man's standard response to this generous offer. During the dialogue, the people stacked several kilograms of salt, 
liters of water, and a selection of edible vegetables near the opening of the makeshift shed. After several minutes, the old man did a hand gesture and spoke the final word signaling the end of their conversation. A few more minutes were spent loading everything onto the spacecraft. The top of the shed was removed and the spacecraft rose slowly. The entire community did the hand gesture that said, thank you and goodbye, in the trade language. The spacecraft rose high into the sky until it blended into the darkness. As everyone returned to their homes, someone asked the old man, where did you send them this time? Russia. Hmm. So the title. I like that. <laughs> it is? UFO Airport in House Bay. That was the title of the article. So that mm-hmm. was the title. That's what I had to build the flash fiction around. So Imazamu Yusu, Yesu is actually the name of the township that is placed, as I described it, outside House Bay against the walls of the mountain, away from the posh white neighborhood, which has, you know, lawns and, you know, corrugated, uh, corrugated steel shacks, dirt walkways, and then there's like these lush British houses with, you know, nice lawns and manicured gardens and, yeah. So that's how it's been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked it. First of all, you packed more into the 650 words than I thought you could. You know, yeah. I wasn't doing a running count in my head or anything, but you got, you, you conveyed so much content. I was really surprised. It's actually it's very good. 500 words. I take that back. It's 500 words. I'm even more I'm looking at the word count. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. But yeah, it, I like that. It wasn't accepted. I submitted it to the contest, but it, didn't, it did not win. Oh, well, you know, there's a lot of people out there writing. Let's just put it that way. You can't yes, always. But I don't, you know, the thing is, I, I wanted to read it here because I don't know what to do with it because it was built for a particular context. And so if I use it, I have to explain there was this content contest which they gave you the title, which was a real article in a newspaper, and you were supposed to build it around there, right? And and it takes away from the story to know that content, I think. It doesn't yeah, but, Chase, but Chasey, here's the thing. You know, you're going to write more than astronaut tribes. You're going to write, you know, you've done this one piece. You may do other pieces, and oh, I you know, eventually, you're you're you've got other stuff that you can put together. So eventually, you may have a compendium of your work from different sources, and and telling people what the source is is just part of the fun, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do one, you have nice, any? Oh, go ahead. One nice thing about these works that I did in my South African series is that I actually shared them with South Africans, and they all liked all my stories that I wrote situating myself as a South African. They liked the stories very much. So that mm-hmm. was good. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I've been a fan of your writing. I am waiting for all of Astronaut Tribes to come out because that's, that's a series that I want to take a, a 
a much better look at. And I want to I want to read it on something other than my screen. You know, I I do like <laughs> the deal of books. Book. <laughs> well, you know, some 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 of the stuff that I read though is only available you know in in e format, and so you have to read it on screen anyway. You know, you get a tablet or whatever. Um, oh, by the way, did you ever finish Discovery? Nope, I didn't. Bad on me, bad on me, bad on me. No, 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 no. I was just curious because, you know, you're you're in a demographic that I don't get to talk to very much. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I would have contacted, but we would have talked after the show or whatever. I didn't want to bore anybody by having you tell them what you thought of my writing. But no, I was just curious. Um, and I still... Well, I have it with Go ahead. Actually, I think it's in it's in storage right now, so I can't I can't read it in the next year. I'll I'll get my stuff out of storage in a year. Oh, so. just so that you know, I I did release everything as an ebook, all three volumes as ebooks too. Okay, and how are if they that, doing? If that helps, uh, I won't know until oh, I might know now. Um, in my in my business mailbox, there could be you know I I probably have my July what do they call that check um, royalty royalty check yeah um, so I I don't know uh, there was an uptick last summer after Worldcon and then there was another uptick after. Boscone in Boston in February you know when I make appearances. You know, naturally, more people will pick up. You know, they'll they'll meet me and they'll uh, they'll want to read what I've written, especially when they find out the unique plot. So, yeah. um, one of the things I'm working on is I am actively doing some behind the scenes campaigning because I want to be master ceremonies for the Hugo Awards. Yeah, I know. I I've, I've seen some of your campaigning on that. Yeah. When are the Oh, you have. Awards? I'm sorry. When are the awards? Oh, well, they uh, Worldcon is in August. Like this, like right now, it's in fin- uh, Helsinki. Next ah. year, it's going to be in San San Jose, I believe. It's going to be in San Jose, and then after that, it goes to Ireland. Um, so I, I've got like an every other year shot at it. But yeah. you know, in terms of in terms of diversity, and you know, all joking aside, um, I'm I'm not a bad choice. Uh, doing this show makes me very facile on my feet, you know, in terms of talking, and and doing an award show is going to be a fairly easy thing. You know, I can do my homework, I can write jokes, I can, but I can. The, the one thing that I do seriously want to talk about is like I'd like to do five, you know, five, six, seven minutes on diversity in science fiction, fantasy, and horror because uh, just just from looking around on Facebook, looking around online, the people I've met, there's, there's about, there's about 3,000 um, creatives out there, you know, African-American creatives. You know, some is art, some are books, some are, you know, comic books, movies, what have you. But still, that's a lot of content. That's a lot of intellectual property that that the greater science fiction community, read white, um, doesn't know about. You know, the, the the 
the mainstream science fiction community only knows a handful of black names. And one of the things that I'd really like to do next year, and I've mentioned this, I want to try to get about 50 black artists to show up at Worldcon so that we could be there as a group. Mm-hmm. And, and and do some things along the lines of explaining to people that they don't have to be afraid of black content. It's not like I I'll tell you the significant question that was asked of me asked of me last year at this time at WorldCon. I was moderating the panel on Afrofuturism and yeah. I had a great um a great panel including South African Dr. Nick, uh, Nick, Nick, you know, I have to look his name up because I forget. And and so, you know, it, it was, uh, we're all blacks except the one, South African, and we had a great discussion. First of all, it was standing room only, which was kind mm-hmm. of unusual. And second yeah. of all, you could, you could hear a pin drop in there. Everybody was listening intently. They were polite. They really wanted to talk about what this Afrofuturism thing was and try to understand it. And I think the most significant question that was asked of me um, as the moderator was, well, okay, I'm white. Do I have to know anything about black culture in order to understand? And he said understand, you know, stories. And at first I wanted to do some sort of throwaway response but then when I thought about it, I thought, well, you know what? That's probably a concern that a lot of people have. And I think um, I think my answer was, well, did you have to know about the Navi to watch Avatar? Yeah. And, and I saw some, some people get that realization. You know, that there was a nodding of the heads like, oh, yeah. Well, no, you don't have to know about the Navi because it's intrinsic in the story. And, and, you know, I think there are people who, who, you know, honestly stay in their lane when when they find a genre, when they find authors they like. Um, you know, people are incredibly loyal to authors who they, they have, they've decided that they want to follow. And getting them to stray from that is, is often quite difficult. So the challenges are, are pretty big in terms of trying to get people to think in terms of looking at maybe something new that they've never looked at before. But that's that's the minor challenge. That's the side B challenge. The side A challenge is to get mainstream, you know, science fiction, periodicals, editors, organizations, um, reviewers to actually take a serious look at, you know, some of the offerings that are out there from the African-American community. And I'm not just saying us too, but there's, you know, I've I've met uh, I met two Mexican sci-fi authors, you know, I one Spaniard guy came from Spain, you know, and and so there's there's and black a black guy a black Spaniard who writes stories. So there's there's all kinds of content being being created, but I think the thing that that really is a challenge to everybody, except those who have mainstream credentials is that when you when you write and you're let's say you're a new writer, a fairly new writer or even a writer like me, the, the challenge is getting your work above the background noise level 
of so many people who are creating content. Yeah. I think that's the big challenge because how do we Yeah, they know Yeah, they know Octavia Butler, they know uh Samuel Delaney, Stephen yeah. Barnes and Tanana Reeve do. Those are those are the four main headliners that black or that white folks know about black content creators. But yeah, getting your work recognized above the background noise or getting it noticed above the background noise is I think the toughest challenge that any content creator faces. And that's that's everybody. But even more so, you know, well okay, well here's an example. There are I think about eleven thousand people who are in the state of black science fiction group on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and that's that's a lot of people. You know not all of them are content creators, but I would say probably a good deal of them, maybe even the majority of them are some sort of content creators, whether they're artists, comic book uh creators, um, short story novelists, what have you. And so you look at a group like that and you wonder, well, would would Analog Magazine ever mine that group to look and see if there's something that they might find of interest? Because if they're just sitting back and they're just receiving submissions, most submissions kind of get shuffled off right away unless it's from somebody whose name they recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But you know that this parallels the whole issue of diversity in science, technology, and engineering, and mathematics. Right. That yeah, absolutely, you know. absolutely, and and as an aesthetic, you know, mainstream science fiction really doesn't believe that there's there's very many black science fiction writers out there who are, and I'm doing the air quotes thing, worthy unquote of of notice of recognition and inclusion. So that's why I think uh, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is uh, I'm really going to be kicking the doors hard. Um, starting probably in November uh, for the um, the WorldCon committee to because they have they have expressed a very serious a very serious commitment to inclusion and diversity. Um, mm-hmm. I I didn't even you know somebody had mentioned my name to somebody in the programming committee there, and the next thing I know. They asked me, would I want to moderate, you know, like five panels and do some other things and, and, and actually show up. Mm-hmm. So to do so that, this, and I know they did their it, Go ahead. It could happen. It could happen. But the whole thing is, is I'm, I'm really big on strategic plans and, and making a strategy and, and having a, a plan on how to bring this about. How do we bring about the changes that we want? And I think that one of the things that we have to give up is that, you know, publishing has radically changed. And the chances of any one of us getting a big multi-book contract deal with a cash advance from a publisher is about zero now because they they just perceive African-American writers as being a big risk as to whether a book is going to be successful or not, which, of course, is the wrong way to think about it because all writers, in some sense, are a risk. But for some reason, we're, we have added risk attached to us. 
And so I think that as we strategize how to change the field of science fiction and the, the makeup of the science fiction writers, especially in terms of getting published and getting rewarded for doing good work, that this is something we have to sit down and think about, but we have to give up the idea of ever getting a nice big fat contract to write our content. Well, yeah, I'm kind of I'm past that. I you know, I don't worry about that. But I will tell you what I'm gonna go after next. I'm gonna go after options for a mini series or movies. Yeah. Because here's what's happening. We're finding all of these these black produced and acted movies uh, what's the one that just passed? Oh, Girl Trip. Yeah, I just saw that. It, it just, uh, yeah, it just passed a hundred million bucks. A hundred million bucks. That's pretty and amazing. You know, <laughs> yeah, and you know it didn't take but a nickel to make. So in yeah. terms of the Hollywood formula, as soon as they find out they can make tremendous profit off of off of diversity. Let's just call it diversity because that's what it is. You know, off of presenting um, diverse content, they're they're going to they're going they're going to come to my door. Okay, I've I've got somebody pushing me in at uh, who is it? I think it I think it's Amazon. Amazon's getting ready to get into um, a lot of streaming content too, and somebody's pushing pushing to see uh, my work be made into either movies or a miniseries, which would be great because then I'm set for life just for this one series. Um, yeah. But but other than that, I, I, I want to think, yeah, that's great for me, but will this really be opening the door for other people to come in behind me? You know, that's the other yeah. thing. You know, I don't I don't want the door to slam shut, like, oh, we got our token Japanese-gro, uh, we don't have to get anybody else. Oh, I heard he's a lesbian living in a man's body, so he's filling three slides, so let's just get up some more white folks because we don't have to worry about some other ones. You see what I'm saying, though? You know, yeah. remember, remember when affirmative action really think, kicked in at the corporate level? They, they figured when they I, got a black woman, they got magic, you know? I'm sorry, go ahead. But this is where we, we should really sit down and strategize. And, you know, somebody has to be looking at the big picture, especially for the, uh, the Black Science Fiction Society. I think that um, Jarvis knows everyone who writes in that, society, even though it's 5,000 people, he has an idea of who's writing what and what their strengths yes, are. And so theoretically, you can have a strategic plan if Jarvis sits down and works with you as to, okay, we're going to submit this work to there and this work to there and you know, have this wave, this, this strategy of what types of work to, to submit to which publishers and you know, and we've got at least twenty people writing in each genre of science fiction. So mm-hmm. we, you know, and just like strategize on how we can either get a foothold or transform the publishing industry by flooding it with our content. Yeah, it's, I, that's my it, evil. That's my evil plan, <laughs> and I'm sticking. And I'm sticking to it. This is my plan okay, for well, world I'll, I'll back your plan. I'll black. I'll, I'll back. I'll, I was going to say I'll black your plan. I'll back your plan, um, and and not for yeah. my own, you know, my own nefarious purposes. Um, I, you know, I I'm doing I'm doing okay, and not in terms of finances, but in terms of 
building up my own credentials as a storyteller, as a personality, because um, let's be honest, I was just talking to uh, one of my publisher representatives, and they they were talking about the cult of personality. You know, this is why, and, and how incredibly loyal readers are, this is why the author's name is most often much, much bigger than the title of the book on the front of the book, because right. people are looking for the, the authors that they're familiar with. Um, and, and in terms of the cult of personality that's necessary in order for one to get a certain amount of notoriety, recognition, you know, to be out in front of the public and get your name out there, you know, I, I don't mind doing those things either. You know, I, I've got the show. I've, uh, I'm fairly articulate. Actually, on occasion, I can tell a joke. But in terms of quality of work, I also want to maintain a certain amount of quality so that nobody goes, oh, he's just writing, he's just putting in the time, he's just kind of, you know, he's not really pushing himself. So, you know, there's a lot of different aspects. You don't want to try to say, okay, you have to take everybody of this group and start pushing them forward because, you know what, if you've got some bad eggs in the, in the, in the barrel, oh, wait, that's the wrong metaphor, too mixed metaphor. If you have some bad apples in the barrel, you don't you don't want to ruin your chances by putting something forth that is not worthy. So, I mean, there are a number of considerations, and yes, Jarvis could help a lot with uh, through through the um, the industry of BSFS, and we'll probably talk about that. He he's had a busy last few years, you know, with going to school, with um, you know, with life, and I think, and plus, right now he's trying to get the movie out, you know, the Earth Squadron movie out. Which is is oh, also going to I, give a. I'm sorry. Yes, I forgot about that movie. Yeah, they. Um, I actually did all of my voice work about three weeks ago and sent it to him because I had put it off and put it off, but I did it. Uh, I play I play a doctor, I guess. Um, but but he's he's getting everybody's voice work in so that they can start doing the animating of the characters. They've got their ships done. You know, the script has been done for a while. So that that's going to give another level of visibility to to BlackScienceFictionSociety.com. Um, now, do you have any idea how much longer you will be in South Africa, or do you plan on living there permanently? Um, what What is your long-term plan? I don't have well. I don't. I don't want to disclose my long-term plan. Okay. Yes, but I do plan to finish Astronaut Tribe series. I'm much more successful at at my short stories, and I was just trying to find the link to while you were talking to the last short story I published, which was published last year by uh, Mythical Legends. And the name of the story is called Black Holes and Aspen Summer Snow. And I'll put that in the, the window. And it's what I call an astrophysics horror story. Because when I, re- when I read it or give it to astrophysicists to, to read, um, they, they, go, they, they gasp in horror through several parts of this, this short story. And, wow. Uh, is, <laughs> so have you ever been to Aspen in the summer? I'm sorry, ask that again? Say that again? Have you ever been to Aspen, Colorado? Oh, no, Aspen? I have not. 
No. So during the summer, their their trees, their cottonwood and their aspen trees, actually shed, and they shed this cottony substance, which gets stuck oh, yeah. everywhere. Oh, yeah, we get that here, too. Yeah, we get that, right. too. We just don't have them as much here in Chicago, yeah. And so there's a physics institute that hosts physicists from all around the world every summer for a week at a time to come to Aspen, and it's like a think tank, it's like a workshop, and it's like a conference. And they rotate, you know, for a week at a time. And so the story takes place in Aspen during the summer, and the main character is an African-American male. And this fluff, this Aspen summer snow, if you're African-American, it sticks to your hair. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah. Right? You can't just... Shake, shake your head and it goes away. You actually have to pick it out of your hair. And that's where the, the title Aspen Summer Snow comes from, Black Holes and Aspen Summer Snow. And so it's about having your work stolen as an astrophysicist. It's one of the issues, you know, people have been hearing a lot about the astrophysics community and sexual harassment. But one of, another issue that we have, and perhaps it's not unique to astrophysics, is people can steal your work. And um, they can scoop your work, which means that they're working on the same project as you are, only in a different context. Like you'll be working on it in France and they'll be working on it in South Africa. And it's a race to see who can do the analysis and publish it first. So that's scooping when somebody else publishes work before you can on the same problem. But in other cases, your work can get stolen. And an informal survey with uh, astronomers, I found that most often when, they, when their work was stolen is when they're finishing up their PhD or they're finishing up their postdoc. And as in that finishing up process, you're looking for a job. And so you're, right. invited, you're invited to basically rival groups to talk about your research. And oftentimes, your research is not published during that time. And so you go and you talk at a rival university because you hope to get a job with the group, and instead they publish on whatever ideas you had because you didn't publish them, right? So that's the transition. And what's the most disturbing about this is that's when young people in the field are most vulnerable Every publication counts for getting you to the next part of your astrophysics career. You have to have, you know, like three original papers, and then you can get a postdoc, and then you need like six or seven more in order to get a faculty position. So if somebody steals your work and publishes it before you, that's one less less paper that you publish. So it can stunt your career. Not only does it stunt your career, but it makes you distrust your fellow astronomers. So in that particular story, which I, I want to say that it was published by Mythic, Mythic, Mythical Legends? Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's James Jones's uh, publishing company. Yeah, in the magazine Tachyon Nodes. And this particular yeah, I was in his, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show off now. I was in his inaugural issue. I was the first short story in there. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm sitting here all puffed. I'm sitting here puffed up right now. My chest is out, way out. 
I'm just it's, kidding. I'm the just whole thing kidding. Is, it's not just showing off. It's also giving a shout out to his magazine, Tachyon Knows. So, well, yeah. Um, it's, he's really trying to do a quality, um, a quality publication. And I like that about him, which is why I, I, I wrote this story so that he could have it in there. Um, but now that I know, is yours coming out in this, this current issue? No, it came out last year, actually. Oh, what, uh, like the second edition? The well, I'll find I'll find out from him because yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and buy the issue that you're in as well. My my story was about uh, when uh, when Earth some Earth explorers rotate out of this universe um, into the meta universe and meet the creator of all things. Okay. So I yeah. found it. I'm going to put the link in the little window here. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So let me finish with that story, what happens in that story. So Please do. Again, Please do. all of my science fiction is, is American, except for when I was writing for South Africa. It's American talking about American issues. So we have an African-American male astrophysicist, and we have a situation in which he's an insider-outsider. He's both an astrophysicist, but, you know, he's an outsider because, you know, the the aspen snow gets stuck in his hair, and it doesn't get stuck in anybody else's hair because they're not (laughs) African-American, right? Right. Just for example, so he has to work harder to keep all this stuff out of his hair. And this is an essential difference between him and everyone else because they're not African-American. And so he's he's a stranger in a strange land, but it's a familiar land because he already has a PhD. So, you know, he encounters the person who is in the process of stealing his work, and then he he socializes with people at his own level, and they warn him. They're like, did he ask a lot of questions? We meant to tell you, don't tell this guy anything because he steals people's work. And so right. being both an insider and outsider, he has to process what that message means because are the, the people that are his age just jealous because this other scientist who's very famous is paying attention to him, Right. Are they trying to sabotage him because he's the only black person, right? And okay. people tend to people try to sabotage you and prove that you're stupid. So he has to go through all this mental stuff, but at the same time, he has to protect his work. And so basically this is all the premise for him to pull an all-nighter in order to submit his article, his research for publication, before the person who's trying to steal, steal his work does. So that's what the story is, Black Holes and Aspen Summer Snow. And in addition to me writing this, I know these people who've had their work stolen. And when I share the story with them in astrophysics, you know, they're like, yes, this is pretty much how it happened to me. So you, you captured it. You captured what it's like to be an astrophysicist and have your work stolen, regardless of the race that you are. So that came out wow. last year. That came out last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like the concept. It's out of taken right out of real life. <laughs> it really is. It's taken out of real rip, life. I, I've never rip, had my work. From, 
I've never had my work stolen, but right. I did, you know, I do, I, I run the oral history project for the American Astronomical Society, <coughs> and I do have to listen to the stories of the astronomers and what's happened to them over their life, and, you know, the ups and the downs, and the things that have really disappointed them about the astrophysics community. And so some of that has been incorporated into the fiction that I write. Well, and and isn't it more satisfying to write about things that actually, you know, not only do you know about it, but could almost impact your own life, you know, to have that level of realism also probably lends a more realistic aspect to the story because you are writing it so intimately. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. I'd like to think that. But I wonder, you know, it's it's something that's important to my community, which is the astrophysics community. And I just uh-huh. wonder how it, it got into Tachyon nodes, so that means that the editor likes it, right? But I wonder, sure. does it have letters that travels outside of my community, right? So when I write these things and I, I find my audience for it, and I go, yeah, okay, I captured it, you know, this is part of our community, but is it a good story outside of our community? That's well, I, once I read it, I'll let you know. Okay. Okay. But at least, at least my opinion, my my humble or not so humble opinion, <laughs> depending upon how I. Well, you know. Um. And okay, so you you're going to be working on tribes and trying to close that out. Do you yes. have and other? I'm going to work on my other South African stories. Like I said, none of my South African stories have been published. And I'm telling you, two of my stories are like the best short stories I've ever written in my life. And, and um, Jarvis, who runs Black Science Fiction Society, which, of course, we keep speaking about, was going to put together another anthology, Genesis Anthology, and I submitted one of those South African stories for that, but he hasn't he hasn't published that volume yet. So he's been doing the magazine, but he hasn't done the volume. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I hope that one of my stories gets into that volume, at least one of the two of these short stories that I wrote. Now, I picked another flash fish fiction to read, and this one is called Gauntlet. I don't know if you're ready for it. I am. Hold on, let me please let me pull it out. Okay. While you're doing that, I started a. I I I wanted to challenge myself in terms of creating a short story that nobody else has ever done before. Uh huh. And the conditions in this story is something happens that turns everybody in the world, <laughs> excuse me, uncontrollably telepathic. You've told me about this before. Did I really? Yes. Or maybe I heard it on on another interview that you did. I think you did because we haven't spoken since I started it. Um, and yeah, I and I you was, can't you listening. can't block. Yeah. Yeah, you can't block out your thoughts, and you can't block out anybody else's thoughts. Everything is really uncontrollable, and Earth would collapse in a heartbeat. Um, you know, there would be no more commerce as we know it, no school. People living in close proximity like uh, apartment buildings would slowly drive each other nuts. 
so people would migrate out to uh, to rural areas where the the housing density wasn't so high, or even live in their car away from everybody. And and one of the consequences that most people don't think about is that's the end of sex as we know it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because people can read each other's minds. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in someone else's mind like yeah. that. Well, because it's just, it's it's going to be untenable. Let's that's the, we don't have to discuss the depth of why, but I mean it's it's patently obvious. I don't want to be in someone else's head, and I don't want them in my head because yeah. just because you know. And and the reason why relationships always fail is for one reason, with the exception of death and serious illness, and that's unspoken expectation. Well, if you're uncontrollably telepathic and so is your partner, there are no more unspoken expectations. Yeah. But then yeah. you don't get to present yourself the way you do on Facebook, you know, to create that fictitious person who you who you want to be thought of as. <laughs> Excuse me, people see you exactly as you are. Mm-hmm. So this so is a fun that, story to you, work have through. You have you finished that story? Are you going to publish it I'm, or what? Or is it I, I'm going story? to publish it. Here's what I I'm in I'm in uh, Act Three of that story. I stopped momentarily because I finished the first installment. I'm in the fourth chapter of the second installment in the next Dark Side trilogy. Okay. The Dark Side universe is a series of seven books. It's two trilogies and a seventh volume that winds it up. And something came to me that made me start writing, and even. Even now, as we speak, you know, I've got this chapter four up on my screen, but I'm, I'm go, you know, I'm able to write them quicker, so I want to get them done. And one of the things that I'm doing, let me ask your opinion. You know, the next trilogy, I am thinking, I am almost convinced to release all three volumes at the same time, because a lot of people won't buy a volume in a series or won't start a series unless they know it's, it's complete. Because there's yeah. a lot of people out there, a lot of authors out there who may have started something and for whatever reason never finished it and that and, and people feel burned when that happens. I know I feel burned when that happens. Yeah, and I, I hope to release all of Astronaut Tribe, all four of them at the same time. I do. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, because I'm one of those people too that I I want the whole series done because I don't want to wait six months for the next one. Right. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, I had people complaining, "Hey, when are you going to be done with the last uh the last uh volume of uh Dark Side Jarvis was after me about that too." And I do understand that because once you get into a series and you you, you like the characters or you like what's going on, mm-hmm. you you don't want to have to wait six, or like you said, 6 months to a year to get your next one, you know? So yeah. one of yeah. one of my one, that all of that is my reasoning. So one one of the authors that I read before she became famous was Kelly Armstrong. Sure. I guess she's the author of the she the author no she's not True Blood she's uh the the HBO series about the werewolf woman. Okay. Um, I forget what it's called. (laughs) Bitten bitten that's the name of it. And so she originally was published under sort of a no name publisher. And that's when I got all her books. And then she went to something like Door, one of the famous science fiction publishers, and they were all re-released, right, with nicer covers and everything. But what was nice is that they were all out there. I could just get them all at once. 
they were in the cheaper form. And then, you yeah. know, and that, that I loved it because I could just buy them all and, and read them. Sure. You know, once I read one, then I could read the rest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, shall I go ahead with this short story? Let me set up this. This um, It's also a flash fiction. And this okay. One looks like, this one looks like it's really 600 words. And uh, this is one of the, this is, okay, I'll, I'll give you the symbolism so that you can follow follow along with the story. The symbolism is, this is symbolic of trying to get tenure, being an African-American woman and trying to get tenure, like become a, an associate professor. And mm-hmm. everyone, everyone talks about the tenure process being really, really difficult. Because you have to have so many publications, you have to have such an international reputation, you have to have books, etc. Um, but um, the, the symbolism of this, and I've, I rewrote this four times to, to get the symbolism right, is the things that you have to give up and the things that you have to accept in order to get tenure. And so with that, I will go ahead and read it. So it's called The Gauntlet. It wasn't the safest move. Snow had turned into rain, making a muddy slush of the road. I cut into the parking lot of a large box pharmacy, only glancing at all my mirrors to make sure no other car was in striking distance. It was a little awkward making the turn into the parking lot at the last second. I was still not used to the rental car I picked up two days ago at the airport. It was a monster mini SUV with the high clearance I preferred for this type of winter weather. My decision to stop was urgent as I thought about the day ahead. It was the second day of the International Conference on Facilitating Science Collaborations between the United States and countries in South America. My Spanish wasn't the best, and the translations were a step behind and required intense concentration to follow everything. My Portuguese was non-existent. But fortunately, the Brazilian scientists were using English. I parked as close to the entrance as possible. I didn't have an umbrella and touched my hair thinking about what the rain would do to it. I said to myself ironically, African-American women and their hair. My hair was caged in a braided bun with bobby pins trapping my flyaway potential. It was rainproof and frizz-proof enough. Grabbing my bag and keys, but leaving my heavy coat, I dashed to the entrance while trying to avoid puddles and the piles of dirty snow. Inside was brightly lit with blue and orange decor. The aisle contents were well marked. I paused at the entrance, looking for the refrigerator section, and located it on the far side of the store towards the back. I headed down the cosmetics aisle in front of me, but was stopped by a middle-aged woman with red hair and freckles. Hello, I'm looking for an oil-free moisturizer, she said to me with a smile. I smiled back. I'm sure you're in the right section. She didn't look satisfied. In fact, she looked a bit annoyed. I continued to the central aisle that crossed the store. Excuse me, where can I find diapers? I stopped when I felt a hand on my elbow. Huh? I was surprised to find a woman looking at me expectantly while stopping my progress. She had that new mother look that was reflective of a lack of sleep and general lack of control of life. Where can I find diapers, she asked me. I smiled sympathetically. 
I don't know. Try the next aisle over. With a wan smile, she nodded and dragged herself to the next aisle. Paying more attention to the people around me, I continued across the store. They must be short of attendance. The refrigerator section had four glass doors. I moved past the first two that had frozen foods, juices, and water. In order to survive the long day ahead, I needed a caffeinated drink or two to stay sharp. I contemplated the four choices in black cans with bright flashes of color. Another customer asked me, which one of these juices have the least calories and the least sugars? I turned slightly to find a man standing next to me holding two juices. To say that he was overweight was being kind. His face was red from exertion, even though the store was heated to a comfortable temperature and was not overly warm. I glanced at the two juices he held and said, Sorry, I haven't tried either of those. I began to reflect upon why customers kept asking me questions. I knew that I was dressed up, but I thought I was dressed a little too well to be considered a store clerk. My leather boots, fitted designer skirt, and silk blend blouse alone probably reflected a month or two of their wages. I considered my matching blazer the final statement that I had leaped all the academic hurdles and was now a full-fledged member though it did not have the classic leather elbow patches. As I grabbed the two cans I wanted, the refrigerator door snapped on my conference name badge. I chuckled as I removed it and put it in my pocket. Mystery solved. I pulled it out briefly to check if it had my title before the name. It did. The fat man said, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you worked here. I only smiled. Now I was prepared to say, I don't work here, but no one stopped me again. The drive to the conference was only 10 more minutes. As I entered the venue, the security guard gave me that look and made a move towards me. I kept walking, but dug my badge out of my pocket and put it on. He backed down. That's the short story. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah. Um, I, I did like it. I did like it. I haven't done very much flash fiction. I did submit an 1,800-word story to Analog, but I was poking them when I did it because I invoked the editor's name, and uh, it was, uh, you know, sometimes you just want to do something to be bad, and I did it to be bad. Um, I, I have so a trouble... Did it, did I'm it sorry? Go far? Did, was it accepted? No, it was not. It was about, well, the, what it was was um, me actually stopping by the offices and letting them know that every story that they ever published about time travel was scientifically inaccurate. Not the fact, not the time travel aspect of it, but the fact that every story that they published was scientifically impossible. So they were all inaccurate. Um, and the reason for that is very simple. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I worked out the whole thing and presented it to uh, James at Mythical Legends 2. Um, if, if you go more than um, a minute into the future or into the past, you wind up off the surface of the earth. That was, that was a, okay, go ahead. 
unless you have something like the TARDIS, which can automatically compensate for spatial um, adjustments, if, if, let's say, you're on a time machine and you want to go and you're just standing on the, the stage of the time machine and, let's say, you want to try to go one hour in the future, uh, the moment you pop into space, you're in space. You're in outer space and you'll die. Because I think the Earth is going, I forget what the exact, I'd have to look up the thing, but I think the Earth but, is going like 40,000. I'm sorry? That's a really interesting premise. That's really interesting. So what you're saying and is that the Earth, the Earth moves while you 46,000 miles an hour or something like that? And so if you if you just move in time and you're and most you know they never talk about moving in space you're you're going to end up in outer space or smacking into a comet or something like that falling into the sun mm-hmm. And so what I the, the story was me going to the analog editorial offices saying that you you know that I've done the math here's my paper blah 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 and, uh, you know, the guy, the editor says, well, we'll buy the, the science story um, under the auspices of the fact that you never, ever, ever mention this to anybody else. <laughs> it, it does sound like yeah, a, a it, good short story. It's, it's and, and it was so a great you... short story. The irony was great. But, A, they either took themselves too seriously or, B, they saw right through me and said, we're not going to let you F with us like that. And you'll never know. <laughs> no, never you know, I'll, su- I'll submit it someplace else and it will get published. You know, it's not a matter of, of you know, yeah. when. I know it will because it's it's a very clever story. And, and you know, yeah. it, it, and it's so true. So this one, it's so with this one, the gauntlet one, um, I wrote it first and then I realized that it was about getting tenure after I wrote it and then I, I okay okay sure but um, also it isn't um it also isn't published so I haven't really found a place to publish it as well so I'm hoping who was the uh, black science fiction society um author who published the flash fiction volume was it Alicia okay McCullough? was it I think it was Alicia McCullough who did the flash volume? Anyway, I'm I'm hoping that she'll do another one, and then I can submit all this flash fiction that I wrote, and uh, and she can just pick the ones that she likes. Do you have enough to maybe do a you know a short collection of your own? Uh, in theory, yes. Oh, here it is. Uh, Alicia McCullough, Possibilities, A State of Black Science Fiction, Flash Fiction. And okay. All of, and I'm going to send you, put that link in the window as well. So in theory, I have, I have enough material to have my own volume, but the problem is right. I, write under, I write under a pen name as well. So my South African sure. work is under a pen name, and I I don't want my... My pen name, my South African work, I don't necessarily want them to know it's an American writing South African work, right? Okay. So um, so I can't include those short stories. But if I did include those, yeah, I'd probably have enough for a volume. Wow. Well, that sounds... But, but it, that's a combination of both 
um, short stories and flash fiction, right? Uh-huh. Not, just, not just flash fiction, but short stories as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, it'll be fun to see your work get out more and more, you know, and especially, I think you're going to get, I think you're going to get some, some well-received critiques, not critiques, but reviews of um, tribes. Yeah, astronaut tribes. So, uh-huh. so I, I, am, I am looking forward to seeing that one out there, um, getting out into, into mm-hmm. the public. Because, you know, first of all, you've put a lot of care into it. And second of all, it's a great story, you know, across all the volumes. It's a nice saga, as they say. Yeah, yeah. And it is, it is definitely my, my, my first master work, if I, if I can get it finished. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and you know what? Here's the thing. Time does get in the way. You know, I'm, I'm fairly lucky. Um, I don't, I don't work nearly as much as I used to. So I have a lot more time to, to put into getting, getting things written. Um, because, you know, when I was working full time, full time, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. You know, even though I would come home and every night at 10 start to write and try to write till two or three in the morning, um, still that, that wear, wore on me in, oh, yes, in ways yes, that made it yes. difficult for me to do my work. So, you know, I would love to be able to just support myself with my work. I think every creative would love to be able to do that. But in all honesty, I'm just not at that point yet. I I actually don't agree. I actually don't agree. Really? No, I don't agree. Because it's my life experiences that inform my writing. And so if, yeah. I stop, if I stop having experiences, you know, I deal with scientists, I deal with racism, I deal with sexism, I deal with mistaken identity, you know, almost every day. And if I didn't have uh-huh. those experiences, then I couldn't integrate them into my work. And, you know, people who write from, as we were saying earlier, people who write from experience, it just rings true in a way that people who are just pretending like, you know, like something they've never experienced before doesn't ring true in the same way. And it's like the little attention to detail, the way does what how does it feel to be mistaken? You know, like the what I just read with Gauntlet, how does it feel to be mistaken for someone who works at a at a, a CVS or a Rite Aid when you are an internationally famous professor and you're dressed for a conference? Right? Why is it? Why is this black woman professor perceived as being working there just because she has a name badge on? Right? So that's like a deeply emotional, like what? Why am I forever being less, being considered less than who I really am? Right? No, I I get that. I get that, and that and and you're absolutely right about that. But since most of my writing circles around. Mm-hmm social justice, um, yes. the, the things that I write about are, are things that are current, they're visceral, they are, they are issues that have yet to either be managed properly or addressed at all, and, and so it's, it's, I, I have to admit that it's much, much easier for me, and then the part that you're talking about, 
the the commonality of experience, the life experience, the the actual realism in in meeting these challenges, watching other people fall, you know, trip and fall over these issues. Um, that that part is, you know, I've been around block a couple times, and so it's, I think maybe it's a little easier for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but you know what? Every every writer draws experience from different different places, and I think that you know, it's some in some ways, I think what I write might be somewhat of a cheat because what I'm doing is I'm taking today's society, which is already you know cut and and fitted out of whole cloth, and and then applying and. Uh, like a twist to it or or something. I guess the closest example would be like Michael Crichton, who takes today's society and then adds one thing, like the ability to reconstruct uh, dinosaur DNA or uh, a microbe that (laughs) came down from a space uh, satellite and infected a town and and created havoc like he did in... uh, I can't even remember the name of the the book, but you know you've got Jurassic the, Park, the, you've got Con- Andromeda Strain, Andromeda Strain, yeah, and then um, you know Congo, where you teach a gorilla to do sign language and and actually communicate. You know all of all of his what he does is similar to what I do, which is take today and then do a what if. Yeah, and um, I mentioned last week that I noticed something when I was watching a Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, uh, what I call that binge watching those last year, that I write in the same style as Rod Serling. <laughs> Excuse me, because I want my endings to be ironic or unexpected or misdirected, you know, so yes. that it's not something you want, that you somebody. You want the twist. You want the twist. Yeah. I really do. I really do. So, um, well, we've got about uh, about three minutes to go. Is there anything special that we didn't talk about that you want to hurry up and quick mention? Oh, I thought we had. Oh, where, where are you going to be Monday? When you, where are you going to be Monday? So I'm going to be. I'm going to be in Sun Valley, Idaho. And okay. Yes, on um, the twentieth, the night before, I'm going to show. Black Suns and Astrophysics Adventure is at the High Energy Astrophysics Division annual meeting. So they they bought the hotel and everything years ago because they knew that it would be in demand, but they situated it in the path of the eclipse. So I'll go there, I'll show the film, and then on Monday I will be observing the eclipse just as a tourist enjoying myself as a tourist, no film cameras, no worried about anything. And then after that, I start doing interviews because I mentioned before that I run the oral history project for the American Astronomical Society. And so I hope to do um, at least two interviews Monday and at least two interviews for each day that I'm in Idaho at this conference. And it will be my first trip to Idaho. So should be fun. A lot of, uh, yeah, it should be. All right, I'm going to give you something that I did uh, back in the 70s when we had another, when we had a uh, total eclipse and I was in Wisconsin. After oh. the eclipse, 
go find yourself an eye patch, put it on, and then go around excitedly to everybody and say, hey, did you see the eclipse? Did you see the eclipse? I was watching it myself. You get it? That's terrible. <laughs> it's hilarious, especially with you as a scientist and doing these interviews. No. You are going to be in so much demand. You will be in so much demand if you do that. Yeah, I, I came into work the next day with the eye patch on, and I said, man, that was a great eclipse. And I'm telling you, it was worth money to see the faces uh, on, on the rest of the employees. Horror. I it was horror. It, oh, come on. It was great. Well, look, anyway, you know, it's always fun catching up with you because you are just a delight plus you're doing things all the time. Um, I am. I'm, I'm happy you could make this time for me. And, uh, you know, we'll catch up with you probably, you know, in the next year or so because because you always do have something coming. Um, <laughs> we. Well, no. I mean, please put, so, please put. All, last plug, you guys. We we are, we making making this special offer so that people can see Black Suns this weekend on demand for three ninety nine. Please see the film um, and well, share it with do people. A, do, a, do a blog post on BSFS, and then I will have Jarvis feature that so that it goes out to everybody. Okay. Okay, I will get on it. Do I have to do it tonight? I guess I must. <laughs> well, you you probably should. Well, it's not going to take you that long. You just log in, um, just make a blog post, put the Vimeo um, link in there, and and then I, I and and then Jarvis will see it. If he doesn't see it, I will drop him a note and make sure that he features it so that it it goes wide tomorrow. Okay. Great. Okay, I'll get to writing. That's what we do, All right. right? We write. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, look, okay. thank you very much. Jarvis is not here to close out the show, but let me thank everybody who listens both live and as a podcast, and thank you to, thanks to everybody who supports BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, and a special thanks to you, JC. It's, uh, it's been, as always, it's been great. I always look forward to talking to you. Um, okay. I, I do have something I want to talk to you. I'll send you an email about it. Um, there, I got something fun happening that uh, that you might you might find amusing. Anyway, thank you everybody who joined us live and uh, you know listened to the show. And uh, we will be back next week with another brand new show. And uh, please continue to support the site. Um, uh, hold on, JC, after the show, and we'll see if anybody has any last minute questions. Okay. Okay, I'll do that. All Can right, have a good night, me? everybody. No, Can don't hang, hang up. up. Well, you could, yeah, you could hang up the phone if I'm you want to. I'm in the window. I'm in the window, so you can send me some emails. I mean, okay, cool. If anybody has, yeah, if anybody has any last-second questions, drop them in the uh, in the chat room. So, on behalf of Jarvis, Black Society, BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, and the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, I bid you all good day. Good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.